All right, this uh, morning's scripture reading, as we continue on our series uh, in Ephesians, and believe it or not, uh, it will end a couple Sundays from now before we do our Advent series. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. So this is the reading of God's word. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the word of the Lord. According to Arthur Brooks, Harvard professor, social scientist, who extensively studies and writes about the subject of human happiness, there are four pillars that drive our happiness. First, every human needs a framework or worldview that helps them make sense of this world, that helps them understand how to cope with suffering and death, that helps them understand why we live. So that's the first pillar. Second, every human needs a loving family. Are there people in your home who know you and love you, who feel your pleasure and your pain? That's the second pillar. Third, every human needs a loving community. Do you have friends, not Facebook friends, social media friends, but deep, close friends who know you and have your back, who will be there for you in times of need, who again feel your pleasure, your joy, as well as your pain. Last but not least, every human needs to be engaged in meaningful work. Do you believe your work matters? Do you find purpose and value in what you do Monday through Friday? Now, thankfully, you'll notice how the Christian faith has a lot to say about all four of these pillars. The church primarily is a vehicle by which we are reminded of what life is all about. The church is the place where we can experience family if your family at home is broken. The church is a place where you can experience deep community, and as we'll find out today, the Bible has a lot to say about our work. Do you, dear friends, do you believe your work matters? Do you believe you're making a difference? Do you have pride in what you do Monday through Friday? Unfortunately, we live in a day and age where more and more people feel disenchanted with their work, disconnected with their work. 
Less and less people feel emotionally invested and connected to their jobs. And this explains why the typical employee today lasts no more than four years at one job. Whereas back in the 70s, the decade where I was born, the average employee worked 30 years at one job. And so if Brooks is correct and meaningful, significant work is one of the pillars of human happiness, then what that means for us today is that a lot of us are severely famished when it comes to contentment. We're trying to build happiness on three pillars, not four Thankfully, the Bible says a lot about the significance and value of work. And today's scripture reading is one of those key passages. Now, before I show you how Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 tells us about our work, I need to first address the elephant in the room. I need to address the question of slavery. If we're honest, Paul's instruction to masters and slaves make us feel uncomfortable, right? It violates our modern sensibilities as we wonder why in the world doesn't Paul just outright condemn slavery? The fact that he tells masters and slaves how to behave seems to suggest that he's condoning slavery, that at best he permits slavery or at worst celebrates slavery. And so to our modern sensibilities, he doesn't go far enough in instructing masters, treat your slaves well. What we want him to do is tell masters this should no longer happen. It's a barbaric way of employment. And so how do we make sense of this? Well, there's a few things I want you to know. First, we need to distinguish the horrors of chattel slavery from the African slave trade and the type of slavery that existed in Paul's day. A lot of us, when we think of slavery, we're immediately brought back to our American history days and We we reminisce and remember all the cruelty uh, that those hundreds of years brought. But in Paul's day, slavery wasn't that horrible. How do I put it? In in Paul's day, slavery wasn't exactly the same as that. Uh, In Paul's day, there were many who volunteered to become a slave. And, and you, it was a viable option for people to pay off debts that they could not pay. It was an option for you if you didn't want to go to jail. It was an option if you didn't want to starve to death. And so today, many declare bankruptcy. Back then, you could choose to serve a master for a limited number of years as a way to pay off your debt. What is more, back then, slavery was rarely race-based and permanent. Slaves were set free once they paid off their debts or once they satisfied the agreed-upon term. 
If for some reason the slave was lifelong, it was most likely voluntary, and they were considered part of that uh, master's family rather than seen as property. This is seen by the way that Paul addresses slaves in our passage. You'll remember that prior to this, he had just uh, uh, addressed the relationship between husbands and wives, and then addressed parents and children, and now he addresses masters and slaves. What he's doing is he's addressing the entire household. And so slaves back then were considered as part of your family, and this is confirmed by the fact that when you look at grave markers or tombstones, you would have the names of parents, children, grandchildren, and slaves all buried together. Now, what I'm not trying to do is whitewash slavery so as to suggest that slavery was a desirable career option. Though slavery in Paul's day was less horrific than chattel slavery, there is no doubt that masters abused their slaves, treated them like property, and that the entire system permitted the dehumanizing treatment of slaves. And so why doesn't Paul address this? I don't know the exact answer, some suggest that tackling the institution of slavery would have been unwise for the fledgling church to engage in. Slavery was part of the very fabric of the Roman economy. Some say that 30% of the population were slaves. And so for the church to revolt and speak out against this system would have undoubtedly merited the Roman Empire's attention and eventual squash of the fledgling church. Not only that, but many note that slavery, as barbaric and horrific as it can be, was not the only thing wrong about society in Rome's day. The Roman Empire was not known for its morality. It was known for its brutality for the way they just conquered nations. And so there were a whole host of systemic evils that were taking place in history at that time. And so it's like, okay, which evil do you want us to address? And for the fledgling church to engage in something that systemic, that large, would have dwarfed out the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the moment that Paul speaks out and they start protesting these evils is the moment where the gospel of Jesus Christ gets sidetracked and marginalized. And so we know that God has commissioned Paul to be an apostle to proclaim what Jesus Christ has done and how it applies to us. God did not commission Paul to be a politician or to speak out against economic injustices. Having said that, Paul does winsomely and tactfully plant seeds in his letters, seeds that would one day lead to slavery's demise. 
he affirms truths that would later form the foundation of the abolitionist movement. For example, throughout his letters, including Ephesians, he affirms the equal value and dignity of slaves and freemen. He states that slaves are fellow heirs, fellow partakers of the promises of Jesus Christ, that slaves sit side by side with freemen when it comes to inheriting the kingdom of God, that slaves and freemen are equal blocks that God is building into the temple of God. In fact, many uh, notice that the fact that Paul addresses his letter to slaves in this letter was dignifying for the many slaves that were in the church, where the slaves are saying, wow, Paul is actually talking to me. That affirms their importance and significance. What is more, Paul also identifies himself as a slave on a number of occasions in his letters, calling himself a slave of Jesus and even refers to Jesus as one who took on the form of a slave in Philippians 2. And so for all of these reasons, all of these truths that Paul lays out, they would later, later form the foundation for the abolitionist movement for people to cry out against the injustice of this system. With that addressed, let's talk about work. How does our passage help shape how we view our work? By the way, when I say work, I don't just mean work that leads to a paycheck. By work, I'm also referring to that which we commit ourselves during the week, the bulk of our time, whether we're studying in a classroom, preparing for an exam, taking care of kids at home, or volunteering at a nonprofit. Those all fall under the category of work here. And so when it comes to our work, our passage helps us avoid two errors. The first error is this. The error of making too little of our work. Too little of our work. It's to demean our work and see it as nothing more than a necessary evil. It's something you tolerate, something you bear and begrudgingly do week in and week out just so that you can pay the bills. Movies like Office Space do a good job showcasing just how tedious and pointless work can feel at times. And so it's easy for you to just go in and, and just kind of check out and go through the motions at work. For you, you live for the weekend. The weekend is when you come alive. But during the week, Monday through Friday, is when you become a shell of yourself, disengaged, detached, disinterested. It's just a job where your labor becomes laborious. But Paul's words here remind us that no matter what you do, your work matters to God. Paul says in verse 7, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. He tells us that our work matters to God. He watches us. 
And the fact that Paul directs this to slaves makes this even more meaningful. Even the most menial work, the basis of work, the most despised of work, that too matters to God, gives pleasure to our God. And I want you to note that this was a radical statement Paul makes because he lived in a day and age where Gnosticism was the dominant worldview. And what Gnosticism taught was the bifurcation between the material world and the immaterial world. Gnosticism taught that there's a difference between the spiritual world and the earthly world. And anything that had to do with the the material, physical world was deemed corrupt and sinful and tainted. Whereas anything that dealt with the, the invisible world was enlightened and exalted. And so this dual worldview impacted how the Romans viewed work. If you were someone whose work dealt with the physical realm, if you worked with your hands, if you worked with the earth, if you were a farmer, if you were an architect, or not an architect, a carpenter, then that was considered menial and debased, of lower, lesser value. Instead, if you worked with your ideas, If you were a teacher, a philosopher, a politician, you were deemed having more valuable work. And of course, this way of looking at work and valuing work continues today, where those jobs that deal with your mind tend to get paid more than those jobs that deal with your hands. But Paul goes against this cultural ethos. He tells slaves the most physically demanding of jobs. When you work, don't be a people pleaser. Which suggests what? They can be God pleasers. I don't think the average slave even considered the possibility that God would even consider their work. They probably assumed that their work was beneath God too demeaning of God to even view. He's too busy looking at the more important type of work. But here Paul says, don't be a man pleaser because you can be a God pleaser. God takes pleasure in the way you clean your master's house, in the way you wash his clothes, in the way you prepare his meals. To this, Paul says, yes, God sees you and delights in your labor. And so the Bible tells us that all kinds of work we engage in can be equally glorifying and beautiful to our God. Whether you work with your hands or with your mind, whether you carry a shovel, a paintbrush, or hold a scalpel, whether you're crunching numbers, doing spreadsheets, changing a diaper, or baking bread, all work can bring pleasure and glory to God. I like this quote from Martin Luther. He says, the idea that The service to God should have only to do with the church altar, singing, reading, sacrifice, and the like is without doubt but the worst trick of the devil. 
How could the devil have led us more effectively astray than by the narrow conception that service to God takes place only in a church and by the works done therein? The whole world could abound with the services to the Lord, not only in churches, but also in the home, kitchen, workshop, and field. Here, Luther is addressing the fact that even those who work with their ideas often limit the purview of their work as not important to God. Only that which is done in the church is considered godly work. And Luther says, that is hogwash. He says, that's the worst lie of the devil. Everything is a sanctuary for God. Wherever you work, whatever you're doing, whether you're in a cubicle or at home or at school or in the hospital, all those can become sanctuaries, altars where you can bring your offering to the Lord. And Paul gives us hope, especially for those of us who might find themselves in a miserable working environment. Students, perhaps you have a teacher who is unfair and acts as if her class is the only class you're taking at school. And perhaps you have a boss who is incompetent, and what makes his incompetence worse is that he is overbearing. Perhaps you have clients who constantly complain and are never satisfied. Perhaps you have customers who treat you rudely and, and treat you in a demeaning way. Perhaps you work in an environment that's so politically charged that the only ones who get recognized are those who are brown-nosing rather than those who really deserve the recognition. Regardless of how broken and messed up our system is, Paul tells us, that we can bring glory to God. That though our supervisors may not recognize what we're doing, though we might feel underappreciated, though we might be bypassed and overlooked, we have a boss who sees us and loves us and will one day reward us. Paul says, God knows that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. I don't know how we will receive it back from the Lord, whether it's in this life or in the next, but we will receive a reward from the Lord. And so we don't have to drive ourselves crazy trying to win man's approval. We don't have to beat ourselves up and be driven to deep resentment when we're overlooked or underappreciated because ultimately for us we serve an audience of one and his name is Jesus Christ and this reality can bring freedom and liberation for those of us who feel like you're just caught in a no-win situation when you are at the office Try to get eye contact with God. There's no doubt that God sees you. Question is, do you see God? Get eye contact with God. It'll make all the difference. Look over the shoulder of your boss and see Jesus. 
Look past the Excel sheet in front of you and see Jesus. Look beyond the patient you're treating and see Jesus. If you're, I, I know on one hand in the foreground you have your work and you have to deal with it. But as humans, we can look not just at the foreground, but we have the depth and the ability to look and see the background. And so look past the foreground and see God in the background. And when you're able to connect what you're doing for his pleasure and glory, it's going to drastically change your perspective and attitude at work. What might seem as dreary and mundane will suddenly take on an eternal and heavenly significance if we're able to aim our work ultimately at the Lord you'll find greater significance and worth in what you do now as much as our passage helps us avoid the first error of making too little of our work it also helps us avoid the second error and it's the opposite one, and as you might guess, it's making too much of our work. And when it comes to the city of Irvine, I believe more of us are guilty of making too much of our work than too little. There are more people who are overworking than underworking. In our parenting ex uh, series, I explained the concept of idolatry and how an idol is looking to anything in this world to give you what only God can give you. It's looking to anything in this world, even good things like our children, and making them ultimate things, where we look to them to give us the significance, the purpose, the security, value, and worth is all dependent on that. And as much as we do this with our children, we also do this with our jobs. We tether who we are, we tether our self-worth and value by our performance at work. Instead of worship, I call this workship, where you bow down to the almighty altar of work. And what makes workship so hard to defend against is that it tends to come with a lot of affirmation and positive feedback. When you succeed at work, you're going to get a lot of attaboys or girls. You're going to get a lot of recognition, applause, and praise. It may come with a raise, a, a, a promotion, a higher pay, a bigger office, or a year-end bonus. The more you give to work, the more positive feedback you'll receive, at least if you're at a good company. And so work shit doesn't feel like a bad thing. This is a good God that I'm worshiping. He's taking really good care of me. If anything, your job might be the only thing you're good at. Marriage, man, that's really hard. Parenting, even harder. But at work, people like what I do. And so more and more you find yourself in the throes of workship, more and more you're finding your life tethered and wrapped around your career because of the way it affirms you and strokes your ego. But over time, the achievements, the awards and recognition, the perks, the money, 
begin to wane, doesn't it? When I preach this message to 20 or 30-year-olds, it's hard for them to really see what's bad about worship. But if you've been in the game for long a time, for, for long enough time, you realize that, you know what? It's really not all that great. It may feel good for a while, but after a month or two, a year or two, the euphoria wears off and you're back to square one. If you've ever received a raise, you know what happens. First month or two, you're really excited. You buy something you've always wanted to buy. And then what you make becomes the new baseline, the new normal. I recently watched a documentary called Sly on Netflix, which is about Sylvester Stallone. I learned that the movie Rocky paralleled in so many ways his own personal life. That just as Rocky Balboa was this no-name boxer who grew up on the streets of Philadelphia, so too Sylvester Stallone was a, a no-name actor who grew up in, on the streets of New York. And just as nobody thought Rocky Balboa would amount to anything or become successful as a boxer, no one, no director ever thought that Sylvester Stallone would ever become more than a C-plus actor, a fringe minor actor. But with the rise and the success of Rocky winning big picture, Stallone's career took off. And yet the sad part of the documentary is that despite the wild success of Rocky and Rambo and other franchises, Sylvester always felt like an underdog. He always felt overlooked, underappreciated, and he's always trying to release that next movie where finally everyone will wake up and say he's more than an action star. He's a true actor. He's chasing that carrot. And one of the great casualties of his relentless pursuit of success was his own family, which he laments at great length in this documentary. He laments how he neglected his family and lost precious time with his kids, especially when they were young. Friends, no career, no matter how successful and amazing it is, could ever replace God. Even if you travel the world to eat good food like Anthony Bourdain, no career can ever replace the shoes of God. As Pascal once said, we were created with God-shaped vacuums, a vacuum that only God himself can fill God alone was meant to satisfy our souls. And this is why Paul reminds slaves and masters, remember who you're working for. You are not working for yourself. You're not working to save yourself. You are working for our Lord Jesus Christ. There is one who has proved your worth and significance for you. 
There is one who has demonstrated to this world how valuable and significant you are, and his name is Jesus. And he proves your worth by dying on the cross for your sins. He did whatever it took to secure your salvation. That's how much you matter to God. I don't care what you can accomplish with your hands in this world. It's nothing compared to what Jesus has demonstrated of how valuable and precious you are to him. And so instead of trying to prove yourself and become a somebody through your career, rather look to Jesus and rest in him and find your worth and be affirmed in what he has done for you. That's the gospel. And so what can we do, let me end with this, to help anchor ourselves in the gospel so that we no longer make too little of our work or too much of our work? How can we have a healthy relationship to our jobs? One tool that I don't think we take advantage of enough is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is one of God's greatest weapons and tools he's given us to help us be grounded in the gospel. In order to learn how to work, you and I need to learn how to rest. And unfortunately, not enough of us know how to rest. Too many of us look at our work and Sabbath, that relationship, the way they used to look at it in the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, you worked six days so that you might earn your rest on the seventh. That's why the Sabbath came at the end. And so a lot of us, especially if we're guilty of workship, we're trying to earn our rest. We're trying to prove our mettle. We're trying to show the world that we are a hotshot. Work six days hard so that you can find your rest and reach the promised land. But with the coming of Jesus Christ, you may notice that the Sabbath has switched no longer do we end it as if it's a reward for those who work hard enough, but we begin our week by resting. And you might say, I, what did I do to deserve this? The answer is nothing. That rest that God invites us to every Sunday is a rest that was secured by Jesus through his perfect obedience, through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, he ushered and opened up the rest of heaven to us. And every Sunday, God wants to tell you, you no longer have to work for my rest. You can receive that rest through Jesus. And every Sunday, I want you to get a taste of that rest. I want you to revel in that rest, rejoice in that rest, and be refreshed by that rest. Take in the benefits of Jesus' suffering. 
Enjoy heaven. Get a foretaste of it as you gather with your brothers and sisters at church. Let me overwhelm you with my love and show you how dearly loved children you are. And as you soak it in, as you take a bath under my grace, now work out of that rest. There's a big difference between working for that rest and working out of that rest. That's the healthy paradigm that God desires us to give, to get recharged and refreshed every Sunday, and then to live Monday through Friday out of what Christ has secured for us, rather than getting on the treadmill of performance trying to work hard to attain something that Jesus has already given us. I think you and I can agree that the individual who works hard so that he can get a good night's sleep is not as healthy as the individual who gets a good night's sleep in order to work hard the next day. That's the relationship that we are to have between sleep and work. And so, brothers and sisters, let's rest. Let's not replace rest with play. Let's not substitute rest with recreation. That's what our society does. Work hard, play hard. But playing is a form of working. Because if you think about it, some of us try to play hard to enter that rest but it never works. We just leave, end up being exhausted. But rather, as Christians, God invites us to lay our heads on his bosom, to take in the work of his son, to rejoice in God's precious communion, and to have our souls be refreshed in him. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that our, war, our, our jobs can be so consuming of us. Um, some of us, oh Lord, have completely checked out of our work because it's so miserable. Others of us are just overly obsessed with our work because it's become our idol. And Father, uh, both places are not where you want us to be. Rather, oh Lord, you desire us to affirm the importance of our work but doing it as a way not to earn our rest, but to live out of the rest Jesus has secured for us. And so we pray that you would minister to us in this area, help us to have a healthy relationship uh, for the glory of your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all rise.